good to see you guys this evening. Um, we are continuing on, as most of you know and familiar with, in our book study through 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Of course, uh, the theme of the whole book for us is, is that Jesus is king. The nation of Israel, they, after having judges and going hundreds of years um, without much of a military presence or uh, government, they they wanted a king like the other nations, and so they got a king. And we here in the New Testament, we understand that we uh, choose Jesus to be our king, and so we live differently. And tonight, as we walk through 1 Samuel chapter 16, we enter into a whole new um, era and, and just um, environment in, in 1 Samuel. The book is really split uh, into three or four different sections, and the biggest section is chapter 16 through 31. So the rest of the book, literally half of the book, is all about Saul and David and this transfer of power, this transfer of leadership. And there's all kinds of ups and downs. And so tonight we enter into that as uh, David is anointed king and uh, Saul is uh, officially rejected. So the theme for tonight is responding to failure, responding to failure. The main characters as um, have been up until this point Samuel the prophet. He is he is going to be um, in a little bit different role tonight in that he is not just speaking to the people. So God speaks to him and he speaks to the people, but God's speaking to him. God's pulling him aside and saying, I got I got to talk to you. Like this is just between me and you. Uh, then we see Saul and of course all his flaws. And then we see a little bit uh, of King David. And so between the three main characters in this chapter, we piece together what it looks like to respond to failure. Saul, of course, through his failures up until now in the last few chapters, he had, um, he had made a whole bunch of mistakes. There was heartache abounding. There is sin abounding. And so for us tonight, whether it is tragedy you have experienced and it's grief you're walking through, whether it is uh, sin that you have dealt with or are dealing with, um, or whether it's just brokenness, I think we can apply it to, to all of those areas tonight and how we respond. Because I think a lot of Christians know in their minds, hey, I responded um, to Jesus by placing my faith in him, and I believe he forgave me of my sins. But we have a really hard time uh, forgiving what happened last week or this morning or even on the drive over here. And if... Um, if we accept the power of the cross for our own salvation, but not what happened today, it feels like we're missing out on something, doesn't it? And so the way that we respond to our own sin, our own failures, is crucial. And so we, we, see, uh, we see the gospel both in the air and on the ground in, in this. Here's the bottom line. God's plan will triumph over our failures. We're going to see that tonight in chapter 16. In the air, meaning over all of humanity, we're going to see God, he is going to have his way. He is going to intervene tonight. We're going to see it with Israel. And he is going to say, you know what? You wanted a king, gave you a king like you asked for. Now I am going to choose the king that I want for you guys. I'm going to intervene and just do things my way. Ultimately, when this whole world, when all this wraps up, God's going to have his way. He's going to have his way. But on the ground... We recognize, again, whether we are accepting the forgiveness for our own failures on a daily basis. So I want you to look at your own life as we walk through this. Uh, ask yourself, how do you respond to failure? Do you sulk time? Uh, do you throw a pity party? Do you give God that 24-hour that time period of um, guilt, <laughs> and then you start following him again? Do you run from him? Do you, do you say, you know what, I can't go to cross-training anymore. It's been a bad week. Don't want to hear Ryan preaching on this Jesus stuff tonight. Or do you say, you know what, I'm going to run to him. I'm going to run to him even in the midst of my own failures. I'm going to abide. I'm going to obey. I know that is where mercy and grace abound. So let's walk through this tonight. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So again, God is not speaking through Samuel to the people as much as he's just straight up speaking to Samuel in here. And if you remember in chapter 15, Saul um, had disobeyed God in battle, and that was the final straw. 
He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Remember Bethlehem? Something special happens in Bethlehem uh, about a thousand years from then as we see Jesus come there. But not only that, Jesse is a grandson of uh, Ruth and, and Boaz and a great-grandson to Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. So you see the lineage of um, the Messiah through all this and, and Bethlehem playing a major role. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears he's going to kill me? And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? So the specific offering, the heifer that he brought, um, it would have been because uh, in Deuteronomy, it shows there that specific offering was for a murder that was committed in a specific geographical area that they didn't, it was unaccounted for. They didn't know who did it. And so the people might be um, trembling because they're thinking there's a murder took place around here, or they might be trembling because at the end of chapter 15, Samuel chops off King Agag's noggin, <laughs> and they might just be scared of him. So who knows? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he persuaded Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right. First thing we see when it comes to responding to failure. And this five verses are action-packed. But the first thing we see is that God wants you to move forward. God wants you to move forward. So in these five verses, we see um, two, two main responses. We see man's response, or Samuel's, and then we see God's response. So everyone's dealing with failure right now. Saul, or excuse me, Samuel, he, he's grieving over Saul, and so he's dealing with failure, and God is responding as well. Let me ask you if you're, maybe, maybe you'll find, um, find Samuel's response to be familiar. Uh, what does he do first? He's overwhelmed by grief. He's overwhelmed by grief um, because you know what it's like to get so caught up in your own situation and your own life uh, that you can't see the, the trees through the forest. You can't see um, the big picture. And so he is overwhelmed by grief. And then you see he sulks <laughs> too long. God's saying, no, it's too, it's too long. Sometimes we like to sit in that place of guilt when we mess up, don't we? Somehow feeling like our tears or our guilt is paying the price for our own sins. In which case, the gospel means nothing to us. Some of us feel like, man, if I just stay guilty for a while, like God wants me to feel this, and that'll somehow be good in his book. And he's saying, why do I send my son if you're going to take the wrath on yourself? But Samuel sulks. Then you, Samuel stays frozen in his fear. He says, I can't go. Saul's going to kill me. If he hears that I'm going, Saul is going to kill me. And then finally, he starts to obey step by step. But time was wasted. Does that sound familiar to anybody in this room as to how you might handle your own failures, your own sin? For some of us, it's a multi-day process, and we know it's just going to be misery for a while. But then God has a different response. So God's response to the same situation, same failure, is number one, let's move. Let's move. If you've experienced tragedy, there's a season, there's a time of grieving. And there's a time of getting up. If you've experienced sin, and you have, if you're in this room, you have. There's a time where you say, you know what, it's time to just trust in what Christ has done on the cross. I'm going to get up, I'm going to move. No matter what you've gone through, whatever the brokenness is, there's a time to move. And then God says, okay, Samuel, let me broaden your perspective. I'm to move a little bit. So you're, you're, you're crying over this situation. And I'm telling you it's time to move. Why? Because I got business to do. There's another king that's going to be anointed, and I'm going to involve you in it. So you got to get your mind right on the big kingdom picture. And not only that, I want to use you. 
I want to use you. Notice how he doesn't say, hey, Samuel, got big plans. Problem is, since you're crying, you can't do what I need you to do. Like, he, he, he recognizes Samuel's grief, but he says, listen, I'm going to use you. You're, st- you're part of my plan. You're part of my plan. And then God provides a way out. He provides a way out. He says, you take this heifer, you, you go down there, you offer the sacrifice. I'm going to take care of you. Baby steps. Let's walk. Let's walk. And Samuel's back on track. Let me ask you, what, um, what brokenness are you dealing with right now? Maybe it's something big from the past. Maybe it's something that, that is just reoccurring. Maybe it's habitual sin. You find yourself gossiping, complaining, slandering. You're struggling with it on a daily basis. Maybe you, you find yourself with purity issues. And you struggle with it over and over and you think, I don't know how this is ever going to get better. You're like, man, I feel like everything else in life is getting better. But when I'm alone and, and I got my computer and I got my mind and it wonders and then you're just in misery over and over and over. Maybe it's abuse you've experienced. Maybe it's something big like abortion. What, what do you find as your common failures? Because regardless of what it is, God says, I want you to move on from it. I didn't save you so that you could stay in brokenness. I saved you not only to save you on the day of salvation, to show my power. I want my power to be shown through you every day of your life. And that means you can't stay where you are. You can't stay in the brokenness. Because someone's going to get glory, God and his power, or your brokenness is going to steal glory from God. And your focus and attention and staying there is what does it. You see, we've got to have a gospel perspective when it comes to failure. And that is, nothing's ever truly dead. No situation, no relationship. Like, until we die, die, everything has a gospel perspective in the sense that we have the resurrection. We have the resurrection. I mean, think about it. Look at Peter's life. This guy follows Jesus. He is as devoted to Jesus as anyone can be. Like, Jesus loves him. Jesus like, you're in my inner circle. Like, I got you. If anyone's good with God, it's Peter. And he says, I'm not going to betray you. Everything's good. I'm going to fight for you. He chops off a dude's ear. He says, okay, maybe that was a bad mistake. But then, within the night, he's betraying Jesus, denying him three times. And then after that, even the resurrection blows him away. But he goes back to fishing. Think, man, my failure is too much. Like, my failure wins the day. There's no way God's going to use me. There's no moving on from this. Like, sometimes it's just too big. And yet, what does Jesus do? I love the Gospel of John. There's this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And they're sitting there around the campfire eating some fish. And he says, listen, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I do. And then Peter's just breaking down. Notice how Jesus isn't saying, Peter, are you going to do better next time? Peter, are you going to make sure you never screw up again? Peter, are you going to finally get your life together? Peter, am I going to be able to trust? You know, he just says this, Peter, do you love me? I know your failures. I know you're not perfect, but I'm perfect. Do you love me? At some point, you've got to realize it's time to move on. And the answer that you need to be giving to God is, do you love him? He's not expecting you to be perfect. We're going to grow in holiness, but we're trusting in Christ's perfection. He wants to know, do you love him? You see, sin should devastate us as believers. Like, it should tear us up. What breaks God's heart should break our heart. Shin should, sin should devastate, but it shouldn't deviate us from the plan. Meaning, if sin in the life of a believer is stopping you from moving forward, it's not just a matter of you and God getting right. It's wasted minutes as the kingdom of God needs to be expanded on earth. 
and you are part of that precious plan. That's why responding to failure is so crucial. Because ultimately, this didn't have anything to do with you and your failure. This has to do with when are you going to start trusting the gospel fully, quicker, jumping back into what God has for you. Because maturity in the Christian faith is not just about holiness. Maturity in the Christian faith is also in lessening the time of sulking between your sin and your redemption. It is recognizing God's got to get glory from even my mistakes. And I don't want to make these same mistakes again. And as I'm transformed, I'm going I'm to make less and less. But it's not hanging around. Letting your situation get all the glory from God. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab, so this is one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So that's what Samuel thinks. Eliab's looking like a king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. <laughs> you ever been rejected before you even tried out for something? Like, I'm going to try out for seventh grade basketball, and your friend's like, no, don't. <laughs> just don't. I'm going to ask her on a date. Just don't. Just don't. For the Lord sees not as man sees. This is that famous verse. You'll see this over and over, um, talking about how God judges us. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Second thing we see when we respond to failure is God cares about the heart. He cares about what's going on inside of you as you're walking through this. He cares about what's going on inside. So, the whole time that Saul is leading military battles, and making mistakes over and over and over. And unrepentance is the name of the game for him. A lack of repentance. His heart's not changing. You got this little shepherd boy who we're about to be introduced to. Sitting over there. Growing in character and a love for God. Having no idea what God's about to do with his life. All taking place at the same time. You got to believe David has had failures. <laughs> we know, looking back, David had failures. But even as he's a young shepherd boy, we got to believe he's, got, he's making mistakes. So, what's the difference between Saul being rejected as king and David, who's about to be anointed here? Both of them are making mistakes, but one, their heart is staying hard, the other, their heart is growing for a love for God, for a desire to grow. In God. I mean, that's what David is famous for, being a man after God's own heart. There's a lot of us, even in leadership positions, that look like we got it all together on the outside. And God's saying, I know what's going on in here. Like, does my word still impact you? Like when you're a brand new believer? When you're on fire, you're just learning about me? Have you become hardened to repentance? You just get irritated by mistakes instead of letting it push you to me? You see, failure, sin, tragedy is most destructive when we simply endure it and not expect to be changed by it. It's most destructive when we simply endure it. Now, I know sometimes it feels like you're just saying, just get through this. Like, this is a hard time in life. I just want to get through it. But God wants every single thing you go through, mistake or not, to be used to discipline you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus and less like your old self. We know, again, 
in spirit, the second you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, boom, you were made perfect. You were in him. You were lined up with him. If you die today, God has seen Jesus when he looks at you. Your spirit has been cleansed by the blood. But until the day you die or he comes back, we're going to be walking in the flesh knowing that we don't belong in the flesh, that we got a new nature, and we got to choose to put on Jesus, and we're going to become more like him in the way that we behave and think and understand and less like our old lives. Let me ask you this. Everybody in this room, everyone in this room has messed up. Everyone in this room has made mistakes this week. Some of you, you know, the repetitive. Are you being changed? And by changed, meaning becoming more like Christ? Or are you simply enduring the same sins over and over and over? That's a hard place to be. Some of us are just spinning our wheels over the same stuff. The issue has never been <laughs> when you and I get saved, whether we're going we're gonna to sin or not, because we know. We know John says, man, if you're without, you say you're without sin, you're a liar. We don't embrace sin, but we embrace repentance and transformation. And if you've lost that heart to want to, to seek God in your pain, to want to seek God in your mess, to be changed by the Holy Spirit, that's a dangerous place to be. And let me say this, for those of you who are disciple makers, and that's the goal for each one of us, is to love God, to be disciple makers. You've got to beware if you're a disciple maker because you will start to trust that your primary fruit in the eyes of God is reproduction and not transformation. In other words, you're going to start to trust. It's going to be tempting to trust that if you're making an impact, if you're serving the church, if you're reaching out to people, if you, if you are making disciples, if you're sharing your faith and you're even seeing fruit from it, that somehow God's going to look at that and say, yeah, the outside stuff looks good and that's all I care about. But he's saying, your primary fruit is always what's going on in here. It's always what's going on in here. That's how the world judges it. Remember, that's how Saul, he got elected king because he looked tall and big and strong. And Israel wanted a king like the other nations. And God's saying, I do things differently. I care about the heart. And if you care more about reproduction than transformation, what you're going to find quickly as a Christian is you're going to die on the vine. The other day, um, actually, several weeks ago, I went to my, my in-law's house, and they have a big peach tree in the back. And every couple years or so, it produces a bunch of peaches, and there's a ton of them for just this tree. But it's, um, it's a pretty good-sized peach tree. And the main part of it, uh, in, a, in a storm, the main part, like half of it, snapped off and just bent over. And there was a good amount of peaches still growing on this thing. And it looks like the tree would be devastated. And I saw that a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and I thought, oh, man, that stinks. Like, it's ruined. It's dead. But then we came back over this weekend, and again, it had been two or three weeks. I expected that it would all be shriveled up and dead. And I saw it, and it looked just as healthy <laughs> as if it was upright and doing just fine. I said, what in the world? The tree, the part that the branch that snapped off and is just barely dangling on, like, it's still... It's still going strong. Leaves look good. My father-in-law said, yeah. It's, it's barely hanging on by a thread. I was surprised at how good it looked. I wonder how many of us in this room that could be said of. Like if God, knowing each heart in this room, knowing your private sin and whether you desire repentance, whether you're falling in love with him more if he's looking at your life and saying, man, <laughs> it's crazy that they look as good on the outside as they do. It's because they are broken on the inside. They can teach people about Jesus. They can serve faithfully more so now than ever. But there is something broken. And eventually, 
it's going to show. Are you dying on the vine? But you've got to know that God is patient. He's patient with you and he understands that you're growing. We spend a lot of time with our two and a half year old teaching him manners, teaching him right from wrong, teaching him what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if you have ever had kids, grandkids, you know, when they go to grandma and grandpa's house, everything you've ever taught them is ruined. <laughs> it's ruined. They could be godly grandmas and grandpas, but they spoil and they, 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 it's just a different environment. Discipline is not <laughs> usually what's taking place during that time. And Silas came home the other day after two days with my parents. And I love my parents, but after two days with them, and we noticed quickly, whenever he was getting upset, he was just yelling at the people around him, die, die, die. He was playing with his little cousin, Evie, and they were just playing. They had just been around for a couple minutes, and he's like, die. And we're like, is he saying die? Is he saying die? He's like, die. And we're like, are we really saying die? Like, he surely didn't learn to say die. And I had to pull him aside. He pulled him aside several times. In the next 24 hours, I said, you can't tell people to die. You can't scream it. You can't say, you can't use that word. You see, I could be frustrated like crazy. But as a father, I recognize he's two. And I know he's going to grow. Now, if at 14 he's telling you to die, we've got bigger issues. But God knows you're growing. And he's patient with you. But this is why this is why in our failure and our mistakes, we got to make sure that we don't get into a routine of just going to God saying, you know what, I know I screwed up yesterday. I walked away from those people and I had gossiped and slandered. I know, I know that happened, God. God, forgive me. You know, even in your mind, you know God has forgiven you before you even made the mistake. In Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. But we got to make sure we don't get into the rep repetition of Approaching forgiveness from God as a business transaction that's hollow. Because when that happens, you're going to start to lose heart for repentance. And you're going to start to lose an understanding of the seriousness of your mistakes. But what we need to do is we need to look back at the Psalms. And you see over and over, especially David, David's Psalms. He wrote uh, about 75 of the 150 Psalms that we have. And you see his heart over and over. He says things like, seek me, God. Like, search my heart, God. I, I want to seek you. I want you to know me and to search my heart and to cleanse me. We've got to find ourselves asking God, seek me. Seek, seek my heart. Search my heart. You know my ways. Show me where I'm wrong. God, I don't want to just get used to the same old mistakes. I want to change. I want to become more like you. I want to be led by your Holy Spirit. I need my mind to be renewed. Something in my mind is not right. It's thinking differently than it should. I'm seeing my sin, and it doesn't devastate me anymore, and I'm comfortable with it. God, I need your word. I need, I need to know what it says and, and hunger for him and be changed by him. cares about your heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Sounds like a winner. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. That's my favorite verse right there in this. We will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day 
forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, just as a, as a little bit of a picture here, can you imagine standing there? You're dirty. You've been a shepherd out in the field all day long. And you've got this horn, this big old horn of oil. And you pop off the lid or cloth or whatever you got going on there, and it's dumped on his head. You see, when they would anoint, they would pour it on their head, and they would watch. They would see the oil. You know how thick oil is, and the oil would seep into their pores, and it would cover their face, and it would be this illustration of God's favor and his presence and his spirit covering you. And so you're just dripping with the presence of God, with the favor of God, the hand of God. It would have been overwhelming to those looking around. Third thing we see in responding to our failure, our sins. So we've got to be patient. Know that God is working. We've got to be patient and know that God is working. You see, Samuel, <laughs> I'm sure Samuel was feeling uncomfortable as son after son after son is passing by. And now, all of a sudden, all the sons are done. You'd think, hey, I want a quick answer. Samuel's, Samuel's probably urgent in finding who's going to be the king. Remember, he started this journey thinking he might get killed by Saul. So he's, he's probably not like, hey, let's just hang out. You know, let's just do whatever. And so he, he has to wait, even though he probably wanted an answer quickly. You see, that is the same with us. You know, whatever you're going through right now, whether it's tragedy, whether it's grief, whether it's sin, whatever failure, brokenness you're experiencing, you know, if you're in Christ Jesus, you know God is working. And you know, the big question is, do you love him? This is the eight, Romans 8 promise. Do you love him? And if so, then he can work all things for good. So you got to trust the process. I know it's frustrating because you want answers for what's going on in your life. We're an impatient people, are we not? Why in the world did the Apostle Paul tell the Philippians in chapter 1 of his letter to them that Christ Jesus will continue a good work? The same work he, he started, he's going to continue until the day of completion. Why in, in First and Second Thessalonians, when they literally thought that Jesus was going to return, it's just imminent, like any moment, and many of them quit their day jobs, and Paul's got to rebuke the Thessalonians saying, get back to work. Jesus is coming, but get back to work. Why over and over and over in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, you see the words, stand firm, persevere, hold fast. Why? Are all these written? Because we are an impatient people. We are an impatient people. We want answers and we want them now. God, if I had heartache two seconds ago, I need, <laughs> I need an email in like three seconds on my phone explaining from you what is the purpose behind this. And I need a text message. I need something from you, God. I need a sign. And we're frustrated. Some of us don't move forward in our failure because we're simply waiting for an answer. We're impatient. When Sarah and I um, first got together about eight years ago, we knew right off the bat God was in this thing. Like it was, it was kind of weird to be honest with you. We we uh, we knew each other. We served together at church, uh, but only for about six months. You know, a couple times a month, and so we knew each other pretty well, but not not that well. And and we basically met up one night, and we were just like, man, I think God might be leading us to, to be together, and let's talk about this, because we don't want to just date for fun. Like, is it, could this lead to something more serious? And so, for two and a half months, we, we, uh, we fell in love. She fell really quickly in love with me, and I played it cool for a while. But <laughs> we fell in love, and uh, everything was good. And two and a half months into this thing, I'm, I'm sure, like, we're getting married. We're getting married. So I go and I, I drive to Salina where I'm living in Hutch at that point, drive to Salina to talk to her dad. And, um, and I sit down with her dad to ask for her hand in marriage. And I'm thinking this is going to be like an hour tops, you know, even though I don't know her family that well. Five and a half hours later, 
I am physically exhausted. We went out to eat afterwards, and we didn't even, like, hardly talk. We just stared at the wall. We were, we were both exhausted from all of the questions and all that stuff. I love to talk about God and stuff, but I, I was worn out. I was like, I need a break. Please, please. And so anyway, after that, though, I went home, and I thought, this is, this is going to be good. Oh, man, he was okay with it. Um, everything's going to be good. And, and then uh, he called his daughter and told her that I had talked to him. Now, to his defense, if I was a daddy, let's be honest, I'd be doing the same thing. If my, if my little girl had only dated a guy for two and a half months, like, do you know how weird he is and how serious he is? Like, he, seriously. And Tara, even though smart, capable, makes her own decisions, she starts freaking out a little bit. And, and I remember she got really insecure. Like, maybe we're moving way too fast. Maybe, maybe we just need to pull back a little bit. And listen, you guys see me? You see her, I had a short amount of time to manipulate her into marriage. So <laughs> I do not need excuses as to why we should slow this thing down. But as we talked, we said, listen, is God in this? Like, God, is this? Like, is God working in this? Like, would we be together if God was not working in this and saying that we need to go in this direction? Yeah, like, we're both sure of that keep walking. Keep walking. But God had to get a hold of my heart and say, Ryan, impatience comes from insecurity. And you need to truly trust that if I started this, I'm going to continue this, and it's going to go where I want it. So we got engaged, but we slowed things down a little bit. By slowed things down, I'm talking like six more months. But it was good, because I had to learn. You know what? God's working, you got to keep walking. If God's working, you got to keep walking. That's the question. You see, the world, when they face tragedy, when they face, when they face hardships, the world is insecure because they don't know what the outcome is going to be because the strength of the world is in their own two hands. But believers, knowing what Christ has done on the cross, knowing that God, if he's directing our path, if we're seeking the Lord, if Jesus is actually Lord, if he's telling us to go this way, we have confidence that he's working in this. And we can rest in that. We can have patience in that. We can be secure in that. And that means we don't need to bow down and get an answer for everything that has ever happened in our lives. We just need to know, is he in it? Or is he not? He's in it. For those of you pouring into others, making disciples, you know it is tempting to give people answers that you shouldn't be giving for what's going on in their lives. There's some blanket answers from Scripture that you can give people for tragedy, for heartache, for failure. But you know, sometimes they hunger for more than that. And you, you're tempted to want to give them a reason. You sit down with singles who are saying, why am I not married? Why am I not married? Everything's lining up. I love the Lord. And it's a desire of my heart. It's noble. It seems like, it seems like I should be married. And you could give every blanket answer of Scripture. Eventually, you're going to want to just like give them something else. Like, this is the reason. Sometimes you need to zip it. God will give them an answer. It might be years from now as they see this story play out. You got the young college folks. You got young couples. And where's God going to direct us? We need a decision. We got to make a decision on a job, our apartment. The lease is coming up. We got to do some things. What is happening? Why is God not speaking clearly right now? And you want to tell them, well, here's what you need to do. Sometimes you just don't know. The couple might be empty nesters. They have a child die. They have a family member die. They experience tragedy. You want to comfort them. You want to tell them this is why it's happening. Listen, is God in it? The question is not, do we have the perfect answer? The question is, do you love a perfect God? Are you trusting that no matter what the brokenness, that he's in it and he's working? And if that's the case, you can relax. You can be patient.
And last but not least, verse 14 on, we see, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now this word, harmful, uh, might be translated evil. This is kind of hard. In Hebrew, the word can be translated into many different words in English. It could be misery. It could be uh, a sad spirit. It could be just straight up evil. Like it's not a guarantee that this is some demonic spirit that God has given, but it's obviously not a good one. The Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Isn't it interesting that Saul doesn't recognize it, but the people around him do? Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skilled in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. For those of you who think God might work through music, yeah, I guess you're right. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Ladies, (laughs) you're looking for a guy. David would be a good husband. This dude has got it together. Therefore, not to raise the bar too high there. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Last but not least, well, maybe it is last. Let me just say it for you. It's been a long day. Didn't, didn't finish everything. Sometimes you just know, I didn't get everything done. Literally, I have proof. God can use bad to accomplish good. When it comes to your own failures and your own mistakes, you need to know no matter what you've been through, God can use bad to accomplish good. So there's a theological issue here. Why in the world would God, let's just say this is an evil spirit. And at the, at the very least, it's an unpleasant spirit. But it ain't good. It doesn't seem like this would be something of God. This is a theological question that has practical implications. And so let me, let me briefly address that. There's evil in the world. Did God create evil? No. Is God evil? No. Can God do evil? No. What God does is holy. What God creates is holy. But God created mankind with free will. And therefore, if you have free will and the choice to choose God or to choose other than God, everything that is other than God is evil. Everything outside of God's will is evil. So God certainly created the capacity for evil. But evil in and of itself is the result of a lack of holiness in the sense that God created what is good, but if he gives you the choice to not do that good, then yeah, this stuff over here has to be called something. (laughs) And it's evil. It's not good. But God is over all of it. And he can move things around as he desires because he created everything for his glory. And so he will. He, he takes whatever he wants, no matter what the tragedy is, no matter what the heartbreak is, and he can use it in his plan for good. This doesn't mean we go out and do bad things so that God can show his mercy or his grace. Certainly, Paul addresses that in Romans. Says, of course not. You don't do that. But you recognize that he can use whatever he wants. He can use it. So in this case, he does. He does. 
Some of us have had tragedy happen to us. Some of us have been incredibly sinful or been broken by sins committed against us. Some of us have been abused. Some of us got all kinds of junk going on inside that if the person next to us even knew it, we'd be scared that no one would even hang around us. And, And in many cases, you might find yourself frozen asking why. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? But the bigger issue is that we need to make sure asking why isn't our scapegoat for the big question. And that is, do you love God more than you hate the pain of your tragedy? Do you love God more than you love a potential answer? Because that's never been taken away. No matter what you've ever been through, God has never been taken away from you. The most important thing in life has never been ripped from you. And it is a promise that it cannot be. I don't want to demean what you've experienced, but I want to put it in perspective. Listen. This past weekend, we went to a 4th of July celebration in my hometown, little old Randolph, Kansas. And Silas, he loves trains. And there was this guy with, a, with like 10 little train carts that he was pulling with um, a, a big train-looking thing, but it was, a, it was a lawnmower with a cape on it, basically. And Silas, um, he saw the train, and he wanted to jump in it. And, and so, again, there's like 10 little 55-gallon drums that are cut in half and flipped upside down and sat on wheels, and there's just 10 of them. And, and uh, they're like kids, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. They're jumping in them. And Silas, at 2, he goes over there, and we put him in one of them, and he's right behind the conductor in his little, you know, John Deere lawnmower or whatever. And, and Silas is sitting there for a while, and they're waiting, and the guy's saying, all aboard, all aboard. And, and Silas is getting ready to ride this, and he's, he's like, okay. You can start to see, like, oh, man. What started beautiful is now getting really bad. And he, he, you could see on his face, he was very concerned. Tara was on one side, I was on the other. Tara said, he's looking very concerned. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he is. And right at the last moment where the conductor said, all right, we're leaving, Silas just breaks down into like that little tiny infant baby scream, like just terror on his face. And he's like, ah, the bell, the whistle had gone off, and Silas, like, ah! and, and as a as a daddy, I was like, oh, this ain't happening. And I just grab him and take him out. And the train goes on. And the train, it was nuts for a little lawnmower train. He was going up and down hills, and he was going fast. He was cutting through crowds. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this would have been horrible if our son would have been on it. And, and it turned into tragedy for Silas. In his own little two-year-old world, he was scared to death. But you know what? He clung to me for a few moments. Tell you what, tragedy or not, as a daddy, I'll take what I can get. I'll take what I can get. If the worst thing that happens to us in life is that situations draw us to the Father, is life really that bad? But you know what happened next? train went on its crazy Ozzy Osbourne crazy ride all the way through the park and Silas and I and mom we walked away and he started crying he said I want to see it I want to see it I want to see it and we had to have a long talk there in the park about how he doesn't need to go sit and watch the train that he can't ride some of us are frozen in our junk And there was a split second where we clung to the Father, but now we're just letting that stumbling block of our tragedy, of our sin, of our failure, it's tripping us up. 
day after day after day. Okay, I received forgiveness in that Sunday service a few weeks ago. I know God has forgiven me, but now it feels like this is wrecking my world all over again, and we're consumed by it as if it was the first time it ever happened, and we replay events over and over in our minds. And the Father is saying, you got me. You got me. What else do you need? What else do you need? Let me end by saying this. In these last verses, God shows what it looks like to have a man after his own heart with his Holy Spirit on him compared to a man with a hardened heart who was given everything in the kingdom, given the keys, given the whole nine yards, but he's got evil. And God uses this situation for David to come into the king's house to build credibility, to get familiar with the kingdom as God starts to transition leadership. The fact that God uses evil to accomplish good is beautiful because it's the gospel. That mankind, in its own sin, deserved death And the culmination of our nastiness was that some guys for 30 shekels of silver betray him, as Judas does, and then a few other religious guys get the Roman soldiers involved, and they crucify the God of the universe. And the culmination of evil on earth, where God is killed, is intertwined with the salvation and redemption of all who would believe. The very thing that the evil, (laughs) that, that the enemy said, this is my best moment, three days later became God's glory in the resurrection. When you recognize that your greatest mistakes, even the tragedies you experience, could be the gateway to God getting glory, God showing his power and God saving some folks. You start to look at the junk a little differently. We don't embrace sin, but we embrace redemption. And that's good news for believers. Let's pray.